This is Herb Montgomery, and I want to take this opportunity to thank all of you who are supporting the work of Renewed Heart Ministries. It's people like yourself that enable us to exist and to be a positive resource in our world in the work of survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation. If you're unfamiliar with Renewed Heart Ministries, we are a not-for-profit group that is passionate about centering a set of values and ethics in the experiences of those on the undersides and margins of our society informed also by the sayings and the teachings of the historical Jewish Jesus of Nazareth. If you'd like to support our work, I'll tell you how you can do so at the end of this podcast. But for now, we simply want to thank you for listening. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 192 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. Our title this week is The Return of the Unclean Spirit, and our feature text is Sang's Gospel Q, uh, 11, 24 through 26. When the defiling spirit had left the person, it wanders through the waterless regions looking for a resting place and finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and on arrival it finds it swept and tidied up, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. Moving in, they settle there, and the last circumstances of that person become worse than the first. Our companion texts this week are from Matthew and Luke, Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Then an impure spirit comes out of a person. It goes through and places It goes through uh, arid places and seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go back in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with with this wicked generation. Luke 11, 24-26, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept, clean, put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This week's saying is challenging, to say the least. As a, as a modern people with a, a more naturalistic understanding of how the world works, uh, we could just write it off as as part of a uh, an apocalyptic worldview that predates the Enlightenment. Um, I agree with Karen Armstrong, who in her volume, The Great Transformation, The Beginning of Our Religious Traditions, she wrote that Jesus and the Gospel authors were most definitely men of their time. Uh, but I don't think that means that this week's saying has no relevance to our work today of survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation. In very general terms, this is a saying that warns about reality after liberation or post-liberation becoming worse and seven times worse than the state of things before. In Dolores S. Williams' Womanist Classic, uh, Sisters in the Wilderness, The Challenge of Womanist God Talk, Williams writes, Among the ancient Hebrews, foreign slaves often fared worse than Hebrew and native slaves. In the case of the maidservant, No release was permitted under ordinary circumstances, for it assumed that the slave girl is at the same time a concubine and hence release would be against the best interest both of herself 
and of the home. And notice that these customs were among the laws of a people who had been freed from Egyptian bondage. This is a post-liberation culture. And Williams goes on to contrast the experiences of of male and female slaves, too. This is from page 112 to 113. In the Covenant Code, Exodus 22 through 2333, God identifies the rights of Hebrew male slaves. After six years of enslavement, the male slave gets his freedom in the seventh year. God does not object to Hebrew men selling their daughters as slaves, but the daughters shall not be given their freedom, except under special circumstances, as the male slaves are. God says the slave's wife, if given him by his master and his children, belong to the slave master. Therefore, even if the slave husband is emancipated, the slave wife and her children remain in bondage. The only way the family can stay together is for the father to remain a slave. And another contrast is the difference, I think, between uh, Jewish and non-Jewish slavery. Williams again writes on page 113 to 114, uh, when non-Jewish people, like many African-American women who now claim themselves to be economically enslaved, read the entire Hebrew Testament from the point of view of the non-Hebrew slave, there is no clear indication that God is against their perpetual enslavement. Likewise, there is no clear opposition expressed in the Christian Testament to the institution of slavery. Now, we do gain a lot from embracing James H. Cohn's theological hermeneutic of of liberation, which he grounded in the ancient liberation stories of Israel and Egypt. Um, In in Cohn's book, God of the Oppressed, page 57, he writes, Yahweh is known and worshipped as the one who brought Israel out of Egypt, who raised Jesus from the dead. God is the political God, the protector of the poor, the establisher of the right for those who are oppressed. And Cohn also states in the 1975 edition uh, that any analysis of the gospel that did not begin and end with God's liberation of the oppressed was ipso facto unchristian. And yet we cannot ignore that in in the sacred stories here, uh, the freshly liberated Israelite people, they went on to decimate the indigenous people's of Canaan. In Renewed Heart Ministries' 2016 annual reading course book for September, uh, the book we chose was Philip Jenkins' Laying Down the Sword, Why We Can't Ignore the Bible's Violent Verses. And in this book, Jenkins reminds us of the years when white European Christians used the stories of of Canaanite conquest to justify uh, decimating the Native American people. And these Christians called the indigenous peoples, they actually called them modern Canaanites to legitimize genocide uh, of their peoples and, and to claim their land as, as white Christian America's manifest destiny. Th- this history has influenced how some indigenous theologians read Exodus. In the preface to God of the Oppressed, Cohn acknowledges how Native American theologian Robert Warrior reads how he reads the the Exodus and Conquest narratives with Canaanite eyes. And the Exodus, he states, is not a paradigmatic event of liberation for indigenous peoples, but rather an event of colonization. So again, the perspective from which you read the stories matters. And this week's saying reminds us that we must necessarily guard against exchanging the dehumanization of being oppressed with the dehumanization of becoming the oppressor. Uh, 
in the stories, we go from being liberated to becoming the ones others need liberated from. And these are different experiences, yet both are, are fundamentally dehumanizing. In the words of Paulo Ferrer in his book, uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, page 44, he writes, in order for this struggle to have meaning, the oppressed must not, in seeking to regain their humanity, which is a way to create it, become in turn oppressors of the oppressors, but the restorers of the humanity of both. And although we find in the Jewish scriptures a collection of stories from a people who had embraced a liberation narrative as their national identity, uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, Cone reminds us again, was still written from the perspective of the dominant class in Israel. And what, what does this mean for us this week? Um, our saying this week is really about restoring our humanity. In first century language, it describes a person who's been liberated from something dehumanizing, yet is later dehumanized by something worse than the first. And in similar ways, Western Christianity can trace its roots to the liberation narrative of a first century Jewish self-educated rabbi from among the lowest class. And you can see this in Luke 4, 18-19. Yet we have to acknowledge the unpleasant truth that Western, white, European, and American Christians have also been among the most violent people in this planet's history. The first generation of Jesus' Jewish followers was almost entirely proletarian and, and believed that militaristic violence was an illegitimate way to reshape the world. They believed that the battles to be fought were in the realm of winning hearts and minds to, to practices such as mutual aid, resource sharing, and wealth redistribution. And Western Christianity grew out of these beginnings and became wholly unrecognized recognizable to its origins. And though we grew out of a liberation movement of the oppressed, we became vi the violent oppressors of others uh, during the Crusades, Inquisition, uh, the Christian annihilation of indigenous peoples, the Holocaust on, on, on European and Middle Eastern soils, and, and, and Christian enslavement of African people on American soil. Our theologians, our preachers, and our ethicists are simply not in a position to tell people whose experience of life has not been like ours, people who have been the, the repeated recipients of our violence, what they must do to be like Jesus. Instead, uh, I have to be willing to listen and to not stand in judgment towards those presently oppressed in our society. I must learn what it means to, to, to work alongside others as we together, each of us, work for the recovering of our own uh, humanity. And in areas of my life where I belong to sectors of our society that are privileged by the status quo, I must embrace the reality that to be complicit in the, in the oppression of others is to cooperate in crushing my own humanity in order to participate in the dehumanizing of others. When I say that black lives matter or that LGBTQ lives matter, that women's lives matter, that Native American lives matter, it's not for those lives alone that I say those words. It's also for the regaining of my own humanity. And either we're all free or nobody is. When subjugated lives are restored, everyone's humanity is too. And after he listened to critiques and feedback from feminists, gay, womanist, Native American, and, and South African black theologians, James Cone concluded with, with these words in God of the Oppressed, human beings 
are made for each other, and no people can realize their full humanity except as they participate in its realization for others. Solidarity with the oppressed is not solely for the oppressed, as if we could be someone else's savior. We're all in this together, and we are the ones we've been waiting for. Together, we are working to restore and recover our humanities. Your humanity, my humanity, together we resist oppression for the survival of our humanities, and and hope in liberation despite socioeconomic, political, even religious currents that continually threaten our becoming human once again. We have the power to think and to do. We have the power to make better choices, and this world can be different if we choose for it to be. So in this light, maybe this old saying still does have something to say to each of us. When the dehumanizing, this is a personal trans, uh, translation, when the dehumanizing spirit has left the person, it wanders through the waterless regions looking for a resting place and finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and on arrival it finds it swept and tidied up. Then it goes and brings with it seven other dehumanizing spirits, more dehumanizing than itself, and moving in, they colonize there. And the last circumstances of that person become worse than the first. Heart group application this week. This week I'm asking you as a follower of Renewed Heart Ministries to join me in standing in solidarity with the Native Nations on Standing Rock Indian Reservation in the Dakotas. And I'm going to put a link to this in our e-site this week. One of our partners here at Renewed Heart Ministries, Dr. Keisha McKenzie, recently wrote uh, about the Indigenous Earth Network's latest update from Standing Rock. And Keisha encouraged us to take action and to help support the resistance efforts there. And I'm going to join her in this. I'm going to give you a link to her uh, uh, update, uh, which uh, features the the update from uh, Indigenous Earth Network. Um, and I want you to take a, a moment to, um, to actually become informed. Also circulating around Twitter this past week was a meme of how to take action with Standing Rock for those desiring to help but unable to be there physically. I'm going to put that meme in our e-site too, so you can get the resources, the phone numbers, the emails, the websites off of that, different ways that you can help. And, And this week, what I want you to do is discuss with your heart group what you could do. Anything helps. And if you need to get informed first, then take the time to do so, but then take action. This is love in action till the only world that remains is a world where only love reigns. Thank you for taking the time to join us this week. Remember, I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Thank you once again for listening. Everything we do here at Renewed Heart Ministries is done with the purpose of making these resources as free as possible. And to do so, we need the help of people like yourself. If you'd like to support the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, you can make a one-time gift or become one of our monthly contributors by going to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and clicking on the Donate tab at the top right of the homepage. Or you can mail your contribution to Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24. 
888-324-9401. Make sure you also sign up for our free resources on our website, and we have a monthly newsletter that we mail out, and there's just much, much more. Remember, everything we do here at Renewed Heart Ministries is for free, and every little bit helps. And anything we receive over and above our annual budget, we happily pass on to other not-for-profits that are, are we feel are making both systemic and, and personal differences in the lives of those less privileged within our status quo. And for those already supporting our work, again, thank you. Together we are making a difference, making our world a safer, more just, more compassionate home for us all.